Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 this morning. We'll be looking at the the first 15 verses, these verses as we read them together. uh, You'll recognize as some of the most familiar, perhaps famous, of all the sections we might look at in Ecclesiastes as we hear of a time for everything and a season that God has made. But, But part of the reason why I wanted to preach through Ecclesiastes right now was that Um, probably the single biggest lesson that I've learned so far on this cancer journey that Sarah and I have been on has been this relentless focus on today. All we really have is today. I've I've always lived as though I have tomorrow and weeks and months and years after, Um, but really we only have today. The Proverbs tell us, boast not yourself in tomorrow. Um, And so because all we have is today, how, how should we live today? How do, we, how do we find today to be, in fact, God's time, God's day, a day that, that we might seize for his honor and glory, or is it a day that gets done to us? All too often we go through our days and we feel as though they're happening to us rather than participating in what God is doing in our days. I think that's one of the things we'll learn, especially this morning, as we turn our attention to this part of God's word. But in order to hear the message of the preacher, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come asking you for help. Indeed, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit speaking in and through Holy Scripture, um, this is simply a talk. It's not the word of the Lord, but But Holy Spirit, if you come and you open our eyes of faith, you open our ears, you open our heart, then this becomes what it actually is, the Word of God, with power and by the Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come. Do your work among us, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. 
Nothing can be added to it or, nor nothing taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in my previous pastorate, First Presbyterian Church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, in the hallway just off the sanctuary, the hallway that took you from the sanctuary to the fellowship hall, um, there hung seven pictures of my predecessors. Now, I'll never forget, actually, the day I candidated there, George Guthrie, who was the grandson of the second pastor of that church, excuse me, George Curry, uh, the second the grandson of the second pastor of that church, he took me over to those pictures and he said, Dr. Lucas, Dr. Lucas, I, I hanged all these pictures and one day I'm going to hang you. And I said, Mr. Guthrie, I sure hope you don't hang me. Um, but periodically I would go to the hallway, maybe on a Tuesday afternoon or a Thursday afternoon when I had a minute, I would go into that hallway and I would, I would stand before those pictures and I, I felt as though I was living back out one of my favorite scenes from my favorite movie, Dead Poet Society. You might remember that famous scene when Mr. Keating, played by Robin Williams, takes his class to a similar set of pictures. Pictures of their predecessors, trophies and the rest, and he tells them that many of these men are now dead. And he calls them to remember to lean into the pictures, to, to listen to what they might say, and then maybe a little cornily, he says, carpe diem, seize the day, boys, as though the pictures were speaking to them. I used to do the same thing, go and listen to those pictures to see what they'd say. And inevitably, my seven predecessors would say, what are you doing? Are you such a knucklehead? What are you doing? Of course, that scene that I mentioned from Dead Poets Society, you, you, you remember the scene, but you may not remember that it begins with Robin Williams playing Mr. Keating, quoting a, a 17th century poem uh, by a poet named Robert Herrick. He only quotes the first line, but the rest of the poem actually goes like this. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Old time is still a-flying. And this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow, will be dying. The glorious lamp of heaven, the sun, the higher he's a-getting, the sooner will his race be won. And ere he's to-setting. That age is best, which is the first, when you and blood are warmer, but being spent the worse and worst time still succeed the former. Then be not coy, but use your time, and while you may, go marry. For having lost but once your prime, you may forever tarry. The poem actually is to the young virgins. Herrick writes the poem especially to young men, urging them not to delay marriage, because what they may find is, is that they miss that opportunity to get married, and then, having tarried, they die, and they die alone. But the message, even if you didn't know the title, is still clear, and it's what's used in the movie. Namely, life is short. Life is short. Time is flying. And so we need to seize the day. Now, now people have come to today's text here in Ecclesiastes, 
and have read it as though the preacher of Ecclesiastes were simply giving a, a kind of human-centered advice, as though he's urging us to, to seize today, because after all, there's a time and season for everything. And so we must seize the day, seize the moments, so that we might have maximum self-fulfillment in, in a kind of atmosphere of peace and happiness. That, that's what he's saying, right? I mean, Surely that's how the first eight verses have been read or heard by so many in popular culture since the 1960s when the rock band The Birds, you might remember, turned them into a hit song, Turn, Turn, Turn. But as, a, as generation after generation has grown up since the 1960s seeking self-fulfillment and peace and, and happiness and understanding, what's been the result? How's that worked out for you? Well, not so well, has it? No, the result is frustration and weariness, vanity and a, and a chasing after wind. That, that message is not what the preacher is intending here in our passage this morning. In, in, in fact, what we're going to find is the preacher is trying to teach us true biblical wisdom. But in order to, to know true wisdom, we have to see the world as it actually is, not, not as we wish it would be. And so here's what the preacher's trying to tell us. Time's not under your control. Right? Time is not under your control. It's under God's control. God's the one who appointed the seasons and times for human beings. He's the Lord of history. He's the king of time. But each time and all our time that God gives us is pregnant with meaning and possibility. As we live our lives centered on God as Lord of all, it becomes possible for us to seize each day, not as our day, but to seize each day as God's day, a day in which he's at work, a day in which he's accomplishing his purpose, a day in which we might find his good gifts and use them to his glory. Now, if that's the case, we have to ask the question, how do we seize today as God's day? Well, the preacher wants us to see that if we're going to seize today as God's day, we have to see today as God's time. That first verse, I think, sets the stage for this. You look at it again, chapter 3, verse 1, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And when you read that, the questions that should occur to you is this. Who established the times? Uh, who set the season for every matter under heaven? And the answer, of course, is God did. God is the Lord of history. God is the king of time. He's the one who knows the beginning from the end because he's the one who establishes his purposes and brings them to pass. The prophet Isaiah um, speaking the word of the Lord to his people in Isaiah 46, put it this way. God says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. What, what marks, marks out God as God? Well, according to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that comes through Isaiah, what marks out God as God is he knows the end from the beginning. 
from ancient times things that have not yet come to pass. How's that possible? Well, it's possible because God is the one who's purposed these things. He's accomplishing his purpose in the events that enter our lives because this time is God's time. And so in the various things that have entered your life, the past weeks, months, years, these things didn't come by way of accident or chance. Rather, these things have come to you by the work of the hand of God. God is the one who's in charge of the times and the seasons. That's, that's one of the things we learn from this passage. And these pairs, they're actually um, four sets of seven that work their way through this passage. 28 different times that are actually mentioned here by the preacher. Whether planning or plucking up or killing or healing, breaking down or building up, weeping, laughing, mourning, dancing, all the rest. All of these times are ultimately God's times, which means that not just the good times that come into our lives, but also the bad times are actually part of God's season for you. They didn't happen by chance. They didn't happen by accident. That means then what's come into your life has, has profound meaning and purpose because God is at work in it. Listen, cancer is not outside the royal kingly purpose of God. It is in fact part of God's season in your life. The abandonment of your spouse or the abandonment of a parent, as horrific and awful as that is, didn't happen by chance, didn't happen by accident. Somehow that is part of God's time. Your child's rebellion is not outside of the purpose of God. It's part of God's season, part of God's time, part of his working. The real question isn't whether these things are, are part of God's time. They undoubtedly are. The real question is whether we will see them that way. Whether we will see these things that have entered into our lives as part of God's time and season and seize them as such. Because nothing that has entered your life happens by accident or chance. But not only is that the case, we can go one step further and we can say that every day, every, every time that you entered into actually has profound meaning and purpose. It's pregnant with possibility. There's actually two Greek words that stand in for time. All too often, we experience time like chronos, one moment after another dragging on into infinity, like a, like a fourth grader. You remember being in fourth grade? And after lunch, the teacher's droning on and on in the front like Charlie Brown's teacher, but your eyes are fixed on the clock. And the clock is going so slow. One o'clock, one ten, one fifty. It's never going to get to three o'clock. That that's how we experience time. We we feel as though we're chained by moment by moment. That's Chronos. Time is being done to us, if you will. But but what the preacher's talking about here is not Chronos, time that drags on. It's being done to us, but rather the Greek word Kairos time that's actually pregnant with possibility and opportunity, with meaning and surprise, like that, that moment 
in between your parents on Christmas Day saying, you can come downstairs now, and you actually hitting the bottom of the stairs. That, that, that time, which probably for most of us, if you were like me, lasted about five seconds as we herded downstairs to the presence. But that moment in time was filled with possibility, opportunity, meaning, pregnant with possibility. That, that's what time is like when we begin to see our times, not as our times, but it's God's time. Nothing happens by accident or chance. Each moment is pregnant with possibility and meaning because the days that God calls us to seize are actually his days, his time in which he is at work. Those times are filled with God's activity. The preacher brings us back to the question he's been asking in the previous two chapters in verse 9. You see it? What gain has the worker from his toil. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There's that question, right? What gain, what profit do we gain from all our toil? But, but asking that question now three chapters into the preacher's message, we we now have a a different ground upon which to answer the question. Because if we see all of time as God's time, we can begin to see how our activity, our labor, our toil, is actually God's activity. And if it's God's activity, if God is the one working through you and me in our working and in our toil in this world, that means our working takes on profound meaning and importance. What does God do? What what characterizes God's activity as he works through you and me? Well, one characteristic of God's working is beauty. That's what the preacher says. He has made everything beautiful in its time. That word beautiful is is the same Hebrew set of cognates, set of words that you find back in Genesis chapter 1, where God goes out as a workman and he does the work of creation and he comes back in and what does he say? Beautiful. And he goes back out and he does his work of forming and filling and he comes back in and what does he say? Beautiful. And he does it over and again and when he comes to the end of the sixth day, what does he say? It's very beautiful. It's very beautiful good. It's all fitting. That's what the preacher is saying. When God is at work in our world today, when he's at work through you and me, what characterizes his working through us is beauty. It's good. It's beautiful. It's fitting. So when you think about tomorrow And the work, the toil, the labor that God's called you to, what you need to see is that God is actually doing his work in and through you, which means your working has the possibility, the opportunity. It's pregnant with beauty, with goodness. It is fitting. Your your accounting work, it takes on beauty and fitness as you bring order to other people's finances as you point them in a, in a good, sound, wise direction for how they use their money. That's beautiful. That's good. It's fitting. Your medical work, whatever medical, part of the medical profession you find yourself in, it, it's made beautiful. 
as it brings about the possibility of healing and hope. As you minister to and care for a, a heart patient or a cancer patient, as you set a bone or you, you put a boot on someone's foot so that they are able to, to heal, you're actually bringing about beauty, fittingness, goodness, as, as God do, does his work through you. Your legal work, as you, as you write out contracts and enforce contracts, as you have to go to court because someone broke a contract, you're actually participating in God's justice that's, that's hardwired into his world and into our hearts. And that's good and beautiful and fitting. Your parenting work, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad or, or whether you're both working and you're co-parenting in this way, however it is, your parenting work is beautiful. As, as children learn both the basics of life, eating, drinking, sleeping, talking, reading, all the things that go into being, to growing up, but also as, as the, the glories of this time as God's time are taught to them. As you close the day in prayer, or you sing the doxology together, you read a scripture passage, or you simply go through your day talking about what God has done, you're, you're doing God's work. You're participating in God's activity. Don't you see? When this time is not just your time, but God's time, and, and these activities are not just your activities, but God's activities through you, they take profound meaning and purpose. Martin Luther was famous for, for trying to say this very thing, that the work that we do in our daily lives has profound meaning because it's God's working through us. Luther says at one point, a shoemaker, a smith, a farmer, each has his manual occupation and work, and yet... At the same time, all are eligible to, to, to be acts as priests and bishops. Every one of them, in his occupation or handicraft, ought to be useful to his fellows and serve them in such a way that the various trades are all directed to the best advantage of the community and promote the well-being of body and soul, just as all the organs of the body serve each other. You hear what he's saying? When we, when we actually carry out the callings that God's given us as, as we live in such a way that our activities we recognize are God's activities, he's the one who's causing this whole social organism to work together so that it is beautiful because that's how God is. That's the characteristic of his working. It's, it has beauty, but it also points to eternity. The preacher also says here in verse 11, also he's put eternity into a man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. This eternity that's in our hearts causes us to strive, causes us to long to know God's works through space and time, causes us to launch out into space or, or to seek new medical breakthroughs or to labor or work for new engineering processes. All of these things are part of God's common grace and general revelation, the general operations of God's spirit. God is at work in our world. This part of the eternity that he's put in our hearts that we might strive to know. Even more, though, that God, God's put eternity in your heart to make you know that you've been made for more than this world. Because God's made you in his image. Made you after his own likeness with an immaterial part that will live forever. And so we do experience restlessness and longing and even these amazing things 
amazing technology, good work, beauty that we see, it, it can't ultimately satisfy us. God is at work in our world for just this purpose. He's the one who's working in and through you. Beauty and eternity, his gifts, his work in us, his work in the world. Because we see time as God's time. God's time in which God is active in his world to accomplish God's own purpose. The preacher says in verse 12, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been, and God sees what has been driven away. Now, this sounds very similar to what we've already heard at the end of chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. And in a way, it is similar. But, but this sense that God has a purpose for our lives actually gives the preacher a note of confidence. He's, he says twice, both in verse 12 and in verse 14, I perceived. The, the Hebrew word there is actually a little stronger than that. It's a, a settled conclusion, a, the end of a confident line of reasoning. Here it is. This is what I've concluded about God's purpose. Well, what is it, preacher? What have you concluded about God's purpose for our lives? Well, the first thing he concludes is that our lives are meant for joyful service. I think that's what he's saying in verses 12 and 13. Namely, that we should embrace joy in our moments, in our food, our drink, our families, yes. Embrace joy in our moments and also to do good to others as we have opportunity. Uh, undoubtedly, as we enjoy the good gifts of life and as we share with others, we are actually living in line with God's purpose. This isn't mere moralism. It's not, it's not a kind of golden rule Christianity. No, this is actually only possible, this joyful service, as we come to see that this is God's time. This is how God works. He, he, he does this work in and through you and me to bring our good works to bear for our neighbor's sake. I need you as a neighbor. You need me. We need each other. We need the good works that God has set before us to do. God doesn't need our good works. There's nothing we can do that's good that's going to add to God. But listen, your neighbor needs your good works. Your neighbor needs your work in the classroom. Your neighbor needs your work in the insurance business. Your neighbor needs your work with your family. Your neighbor needs you, whether they want to believe it or not. This is the life of joyful service that God has called us to that's part of God's purpose for our time. But there's another purpose that he has, not just joyful service, but also a trusting reverence. I think that's what the preacher is getting at in the second perception that he has. If we fail, he's telling us, to seize our days as God's time, pregnant with meaning, time in which God is at work, so that we might live in line with God's purpose for us, what's the result? What's verse 15? It's frustration. What is has already been. What will be has already been. It's the same language we heard at the very beginning of the book in verses 3 to 11 of chapter 1. 
this kind of endless cycle of frustration and chasing after vapor and smoke. But, but what if we seize today as God's day? What if we seize this time as God's time? What if we recognize God's work in our work, creating beauty and pointing to eternity? What, what happens then? Well, then we say what the preacher said. God's done it. God is at work. Whatever God does endures and lasts. It's what the psalmist prays. Establish the work of our hands for us, God. Establish the work of our hands. It's what Paul points us to as a result of the resurrection, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Uh, Psalm 91 and 1 Corinthians 15 aren't simply talking about spiritual labor. It's talking about our work in this world, our joyful service. How do we trust that it means something? How do we trust that you're not just wasting your time tomorrow or Thursday afternoon or Tuesday on the business trip? How, how do we trust that it has some purpose and meaning? Well, because God's the one who establishes the work of his hands. He's the one who's at work. We, we live lives of trust and reverence because we know that our days are in fact God's days. And we live with the end in view. That's ultimately what I think Robert Herrick, the poet I mentioned at the beginning of this, was really driving at. Life is short. Death is coming. Youth flees. Old age arrives. He said, the same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. Life is short. And because life is short, we can find ourselves so, so restless. What do we do with our restless hearts? With, with this sense that if, if we don't truly understand time and activity and purpose as God's, not ours, that, that we simply are chasing frustration, what do we do with our restless hearts? Well, there is an old theologian named Augustine in his, his memoir that he wrote called The Confessions. And Augustine said this. He said, our, our hearts are restless. It's true. Our hearts are restless. And then he goes on, and until they find their rest in you, O Lord. See, that's what the preacher is saying. That, that the only pathway for your restless heart is to seize today... Not as your time, not as your day, but as God's. Will you do that this morning? Will you look at your days and times and seasons in just that way? Will you seize the day? Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we do desire to live today as your day. And in order to do so, we, we know that the old gospel song is true. We must trust and obey. Trust that you are the one at work in our, our daily lives and then obey what your word calls us to do. Lord, help us to live just this way we ask so that today will be lived out before you as your day. Grant us this, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.